Last week we finished the first chapter of the Gospel of John. In those final verses, 35 to 51, we see Jesus beginning to surround himself with disciples. The first two disciples we met in our text were Andrew and John, who happened to be the writer of the gospel we're reading. They were initially disciples of John the Baptist's, but they are encouraged by John's declaration of Jesus as the Lamb of God, and they're encouraged to follow him. So they become followers of Jesus through hearing a very short message Behold the Lamb of God, which is shorter than the message I'm going to bring this morning. But that's what caused them to follow Jesus. Afterward, they spent the day with Jesus, and Andrew convinces his brother Simon to come and meet Jesus as well, declaring him to be the Messiah. Well, that got Simon's attention. Upon meeting Jesus, Simon learns that his name will be in the future called Cephas, or Peter. <laughs> Repeat. No, that's, that's a different story. So his name is going to be called Peter, a stone. Peter becomes a follower of Jesus through family evangelism. So the first uh, gentleman became a follower of Jesus through the preaching of the word. Uh, the first two, the second two, through family bringing the word. Or encouragement, at least. The following day, Jesus approached a young man named Philip. And he walks up to him and he simply says to him, follow me. That's it. That's what it took for Philip to attach himself to Jesus Christ for the rest of his life. This is what I would call direct evangelism. Philip had an encounter with the Lord that instantly and permanently transformed him. Finally, Philip, after spending again the day with Jesus, he desires that his friend Nathaniel be introduced to Jesus. And when you learn anything about Nathaniel, you can see why Philip wanted Nathaniel to meet Jesus. Nathaniel has some doubts at first, but within moments of meeting the Lord, Nathaniel understands who Jesus truly is. Because Jesus of Nazareth knows what Nathaniel is thinking in his heart. Jesus knows that Nathaniel is honestly wrestling with God concerning the meaning of the writings of Moses. And upon Nathanael's confession in which he says, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel, Jesus declares that he is the fulfillment of everything Moses wrote about. The lesson we gleaned from this text is that the simplest and most powerful invitation we can give to people, whether they are searching or skeptical, whether they are wrestling or rejoicing, is this. Come and see. Bless you. Come and see. Jesus is unique. A person can never have an encounter with him that leaves them unaffected. He will discover those who are discovering him. And that concluded chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. And as I said next week, at this pace, we should be done in about 27 years. But today we will move into chapter 2, and we will look at the first 12 verses in a message that I've entitled, When the Wine Fails. When the Wine Fails. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we'll read 1 through 12. This is the word of the living God. On the third day, there was a wedding 
in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have once again opened your word to us this morning. We pray that by your spirit you would continue to bring the light of truth into our hearts as we look into this wonderful passage. Help us to see um, without error what you are trying to teach us here and then to apply it in the weeks ahead. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. There they are at a wedding. It seems to me that it must have been a family affair. The Bible never says that, but um, with Jesus and his disciples uh, being there and uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, being there, it's likely that uh, they're probably related to Jesus. Let's begin this morning by talking about weddings and marriage. Jesus chose to do this, the first of his miracles, at a wedding. And that is not merely happenstance. Of all the institutions that God has put in place for mankind's flourishing, marriage is the only one that was instituted before the fall of man into sin. In other words, there is something so great and so glorious about marriage that God saw fit to institute marriage between one man and one woman right at the very beginning of human history. Now, we all know that marriage has fallen on hard times in recent days in our country. There is no doubt that the enemy would like nothing better than to destroy the institution of marriage because it is the very fabric which holds society together. Our enemy knows that if he can minimize the importance of marriage and eventually destroy marriage as an institution, suffering in the world will increase exponentially. The attacks that we've seen from the devil include rampant and widespread divorce, cohabitation outside of the marriage covenant, <clears throat> the desacralization of human sexual intimacy, and finally, 
an attempted redefinition of marriage to include all manner of sexual deviancy, such that legally now, the word marriage means so many things that it doesn't mean anything at all. This is not a contest between the political left and the political right. This is a contest between good and evil. One doesn't have to look too far in culture to see the fruits of this kind of attack on the primary institution God has given to mankind for our flourishing. So we find in our passage today the Lord Jesus Christ attending a wedding celebration because the marriage covenant made between a man and a woman is worth celebrating. The Apostle Paul would later write in Ephesians 5 that the bond between a husband and a wife is a picture of the bond between Christ and his church. It is no wonder the devil would want to distort and warp and even destroy this beautiful picture. And so there are a couple of comments I need to make before we get deeper into the text. Number one, perhaps you're in here this morning and you have experienced a failed marriage or any one of these other things that I have mentioned. And you're starting to feel somewhat uncomfortable with where this, where this discussion is going. First off, welcome to our church which is filled with all manner of other broken people. You are in the right place. Secondly, if that's your situation, you know better than most how much damage results in a failed marriage relationship. And Jesus Christ wants you to know that he is not only willing but eager to forgive and dust you off and set you on your feet again to move forward with him as Lord of your life. Number two, the state of marriage in Canada today, as bad as it is, and it is bad, is not nearly so bad as the state of marriage in the pagan culture into which the early church grew. The teachings of Christ dramatically transformed the institution of marriage back then, and it can do it again if the church is faithful in proclaiming and living out the truth of Christ without compromise. And those of you that may have experienced the incredible pain of a failed marriage could very well be on the front lines of encouraging our culture, particularly our young people, to establish and develop their marriages on the truth of Scripture. The other example, of course, I have to bring this up, is folks like my mom and dad who have been married now for nearly 69 years. In about a week or two, it will be 69 years of marriage. Yeah, so, I mean, we need those examples. They are anchors for our culture. Our text tell us, tells us that the mother of Jesus was there at the wedding as well. I find it interesting that John mentions that the mother of Jesus was at this wedding. If we were to read ahead in the story a bit, to the crucifixion of Jesus, we would learn a very important detail about John, the author, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. While Jesus is hanging on the cross, he sees his mother there watching. For those of you that are mothers, I don't know if you can even wrap your minds around what that would be like. She would have been standing there holding um, myrrh, which was uh, a spice that was placed 
on a dead body after they would have taken it off the cross. She was, it's hard to even go through in, in your minds what, what's going on. But while Jesus is hanging there, he sees his mother and he sees his disciple John there, whom he loved. And as would have been his duty as the oldest son, it was up to Jesus to see to the needs of his widowed mother as she grows older. And so Jesus looks at John, the author of the book that we're reading, and asks him to care for his mother once he is gone. The Bible itself doesn't mention anything else about this arrangement, but we learn from other historical sources that John did exactly what Jesus asked. At one point, John even purchased a house in the city of Ephesus, where he lived with Mary as her adopted son in that home. You can visit it today. Taking care of her until her death. I've said all that to say this. John knew Mary better than most. And as he was sitting, writing his gospel, he would have respected either the opinion or the humble character of Mary. And what John was writing was about Jesus in every way. Pardon me. John does not include, include in his gospel Mary's visit from the angels or the virgin birth. Because he does not want to stray in any way from his primary focus, Jesus Christ. And here in today's text, I think you may have noticed, John doesn't even use Mary's name. She is simply described as the mother of Jesus. That's how people refer to me. Hey, are you Esther's husband? Gives you a little clue of where you stand, doesn't it? This gospel is all about Jesus. I can almost imagine John bringing this part of the story to the elderly, widowed Mary and asking, Mary, is this okay, what I've written here? And she might look at it and say, yeah, it's fine, just take my name out. It's not about me. Just take my name out. I I can be the mother of Jesus. This story is about my son. In the end, John only mentions Mary, the mother of Jesus, twice in his gospel and never by name. Jesus and his disciples were also at the wedding. Now, we don't know how many disciples he had at this time. We know it was at least five. We know that from the previous chapter where he called five men. He, he had another seven to go, depending on how much John doesn't claim to, make, uh, claim to uh, describe all the events for all the disciples. So we know Jesus and at least five of his disciples were at this wedding. Now, I don't know how to say this next bit gently. I don't know how to make what I'm about to say come across in a way that may not be slightly offensive to some. But I need to be honest with you. I have to say this because I think a correct understanding of the passage demands it. Jesus and his disciples were invited to this wedding celebration. They would have been mingling with others talking about the weather and the crops and the goings-on in Judea. They would have been enjoying a meal with others and smiling and laughing and enjoying the fellowship of friends, family, and even strangers. If you'll recall from one of my very first messages in our series in John, I said that we needed to remember two things. Jesus is truly God And Jesus is truly 
Thank you. Man, in all these social interactions, listen carefully, Jesus isn't weird. He's unique. He isn't weird. He isn't wearing odd clothes so that everybody that sees him knows that he's special in some way. He isn't standing off to the side, silently judging the interactions between the other people. He isn't going up to people and giving them odd, cryptic messages about the nature of reality. He left that kind of behavior to the Pharisees. Jesus was at the wedding to celebrate with friends and family. He was there to celebrate as a man and a woman entered a lifelong covenant according to the commands that he gave way back in Genesis at the beginning. I think we do Jesus a great disservice when we create in our minds an image of him that the scriptures don't attribute to him. Jesus is at this wedding holding the universe together through his power and making small talk with friends as he, in sinless purity, celebrates with those dearest to him. There's one final point I'd like to make regarding these first couple of verses of chapter 2. I think the fact that Jesus attended this wedding with his disciples repudiates the somewhat negative view of marriage that the early church had, at least for the first several centuries. Many of the early church fathers, and even those that came much later, centuries later, taught that celibacy was superior to marriage. Those who were married were looked upon as less than. They were less holy than those who were able to remain single. This is probably the result of taking some of Paul's teaching completely out of context, but it is also because Christians coming out of paganism observed the absolute degenerate state of marriage all around them in pagan Rome. This is why today we need these great examples of marriage that are nearly 70 years. In that culture, pagan culture in the early Christian church, marriage had lost all semblance of a lifelong, loving, serving partnership between exclusively one man and exclusively one woman as described in the scriptures. So for many of these early Christians coming out of paganism, they had no idea what true marriage even looked like. And therefore, they had no foundation on which to base their concept of marriage. The fact that Jesus attended this wedding to celebrate indicates to us, at the very least, that Jesus held marriage in very high esteem. That brings us to verse 3, 3 through 5. The wine having failed. Verse 3 of today's text begins in the King James, uh, New King James, and when they ran out of wine. A more direct translation would read something like, the wine having failed, dot, dot, dot. I need to use this as a teaching point, specifically for those of you that are married, but more generally for each one of us. There's no one in this room exempt. Here's the message. The wine will fail. The wine will fail. In every marriage, at some point, the wine will fail. What I mean by that is simply this. There is 
an initial excitement when we are dating and first engaged and newly married that is unique and special and ought to be cherished and remembered by every young couple. It's a good thing, and God ordained it to be so. But the fact of the matter is, when you have been married for long enough, you know that that initial excitement wears off to some degree. And that's probably a good thing because we can't live with that level of excitement for too long without having a heart attack or a brain aneurysm. The fact of the matter is the wine fails, that natural wine. The wine fails. It is at this point in a marriage that the significance and the solemnity and the binding nature of our marriage vows must assert themselves into our marriage. We don't walk out when we're angry because we made a vow. We don't split when the money is all gone because we made a vow. We don't let our heart or eyes wander to any other because we made a vow. We have entered a covenant with another person, with God as our witness, and we must hold by Christ's strength to the words that we have said. But, praise God, when the wine fails, Christ is there to provide miraculous, heavenly wine, so that a husband and a wife can continue to celebrate their wedding for all the days to come in a love that has become richer and deeper than they ever knew possible. And Christ makes that wine out of ordinary, everyday water. So my exhortation to you married folks, particularly to you husbands, because I know what husbands are like, I, I know one really well. My exhortation to you is this. Look for opportunities in your ordinary, everyday marriage to receive from Christ the heavenly wine. Do something special for your spouse this week. Furthermore, find something ordinary in your marriage, like washing dishes or vacuuming the floor, and let Christ transform it into wine. Commit yourself to loving and serving your spouse in some area that costs you, but that blesses them. Because that is what love is. Having said all that, we have yet to touch on the primary lesson found in this passage. Remember, John calls this first miracle of Jesus a sign. A sign. A sign is that which points to some greater reality. When you are driving down the road and you get to a sign that says, Vanderhoof, 30 kilometers, that sign, I hate to break it to you, that sign is not Vanderhoof. You don't stop at that sign and look for a restaurant or a gas station. The sign, if it is accurate, is pointing you ahead to the greater reality. And this sign of Jesus turning the water into wine is pointing us ahead to the, great, to the greater reality of the transforming power of Jesus Christ in the life of every person that will trust him. We can get so caught up in the sign that we completely miss 
the greater reality to which it points. We think, wouldn't it be great today if Jesus would do some miracle and, and transform this water into wine? Well, it probably wouldn't be good for you. I might slur the rest of my message worse than I am. But wouldn't, it, wouldn't that be such a great miracle? And we totally miss the fact that Jesus is doing a greater miracle. That would just be pointing to a greater reality, and that's the transformation of a person's heart from natural to supernatural. Let's not miss the reality because we are distracted by the sign. So for all of us, every person in this room, when the wine fails, and it will fail, whatever that means in your life, but it is certainly some sort of deep loss or deep longing or deep need, you can recognize at that moment the wine has failed, the natural has run out. That's when Jesus can enter with his transforming power. Praise God. The mother of Jesus comes to him and says, um, they have no wine. Jesus says to her, woman. Now, we don't know exactly why Mary brought this problem to her son. Perhaps she was anticipating the day Jesus would declare himself to Israel. After all, she knew a few things about Jesus that others did not. She was actually present at the virgin birth. But when she tells Jesus the wine has run out, Jesus rebukes her. He is gentle, and he shows her all honor, but he rebukes her nonetheless. Woman, he says, what does your concern have to do with me? There are several striking details about Jesus' words here. First of all, he calls his mother woman. This might be off-putting for us when we hear it in English. But in the language Jesus was speaking, it was not the least bit disrespectful or harsh. A good English example might be if we used the word lady or even my lady. It was not common for a son to address his mother this way, but at the same time, it was certainly not rude or harsh. What we might expect for Jesus to call Mary is mother, but he did not. Jesus was beginning to assert that from this time forward, his path may not look exactly like Mary might expect. If he was going to do something about the lack of wine, if he was going to do something about the lack of wine, it wouldn't be due to Mary's influence on him as a mother to a son. I have to pause here and give a word of admonishment to mothers and to sons probably equally to fathers and daughters, so mothers and fa fathers and daughters and sons, but particularly mothers and sons. Number one, children, always honor your parents, even into your adulthood. Number two, mothers, give your children the liberty to fail. Give your children the liberty they need to pursue even the things you think might be dangerous. It is part of a mother's DNA to protect her children at all cost. But if you micromanage the lives of your children, they will never, I repeat, never accomplish everything God has planned for them. 
Consider all that Mary had to endure watching Jesus, even at the cross. But then, in the same thought, consider everything God accomplished through him. C.H. Spurgeon summarized this text beautifully in one of his sermons. He preached this. With all loving respect, Jesus very decidedly shuts out all interference from Mary. For his kingdom was to be according to the spirit and not after the flesh. I delight in believing concerning the mother of Jesus that though she fell into a natural mistake as a mother, yet she did not for an instant persist in it. Neither did she hide it from John, but probably took care to tell it to him that no others should ever fall into similar error by thinking of her in an unfitting manner. So the rest of what Jesus says is interesting as well. What does your concern have to do with me? This is nine words in English. It is only four words in the original Greek. Ti emoi kai soi. Directly translated, it would be something like, what me and you? Or, what mine and yours? It was a common phrase back in Jesus' day. It was just said. It is kind of like a sign I saw when I, way back when I worked for DHL, before it was DHL. I walked into one of their offices, and there was a sign uh, behind the front desk, and it said, lack of planning on your part does not constitute a crisis on my part. And that's really what Jesus is saying here. Lack of planning on your part does not constitute a crisis on my part. It's a gentle rebuke by Jesus to his mother, and he adds, my hour has not yet come. It was not up to Jesus' mother to orchestrate his life and ministry. Jesus was always acting entirely according to the will of the Father and repeatedly declares this throughout the Gospel of John. In this case, the will of the Father was that Jesus would perform his first miracle at this wedding. Mary, having been very gently rebuked, turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Mary, as Jesus' mother, and knowing his mannerisms better than most, obviously had her suspicions that Jesus was going to do something, regardless of his gentle rebuke. I don't know any other reason she would tell the wedding servants to do whatever Jesus instructed. Maybe there's more going on in the story here, but it seems as though her intimate knowledge of Jesus and the way that he conducted himself indicated to her in some subtle way that he was going to do something anyway. I don't know. Jesus looks around, sees some water pots, six of them sitting there. It's important that there are six, by the way. But we don't have time to get into that. I'll let you study that on your own. These water pots are currently empty. They are stone, and they are empty. Prior to the wedding, they were filled with water and used, not for drinking, for an Old Testament purification ritual for all those involved in the wedding. These are all important signs within the great sign that Jesus is about to accomplish. Keep them in mind as we continue. The water pots are stone. There are six of them. They are empty. They were used for an Old Testament ritual. 
File those in the back of your mind as we continue. Jesus uses what is available. Jesus could have supplied wine in any number of different ways. But he chose to start with what was already at hand. God is certainly trying to teach us something here. Another example we could consider is when Jesus was teaching and there were 5,000 people listening and they were getting hungry. The disciples looked immediately at what they didn't have. We don't have food. We don't have money. Jesus sought out what they did have. In fact, we could go all the way back to Moses and the burning bush. Christ is speaking to Moses from the burning bush. And Moses is listing everything that he doesn't have. That he thinks a leader of Israel must have. And Christ listens for a bit patiently and then asks Moses, what do you have in your hand? Turned out it was just a stick, but became maybe the most well-known stick in the history of mankind. What do you have in your hand? Let's start with what you do have. And the whole world will be amazed at what I can do with that. Isn't that how we are, though? There's no wine. There's no food. There's no chance. There's no hope. Then along comes Jesus. He looks around and says, What do we have? Let's start with that. Aren't you so thankful that you don't have to get yourself all cleaned up and your whole life put together and everything in order before you come to Jesus? He takes us just the way we are, empty stone pots, and miraculously transforms us into something that is the cause for great celebration. Earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 17, we read this. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I think that perfectly describes what Jesus is about to do here at this wedding. He has taken those instruments that were used in Old Testament ritual and fills them with the best wine. His first instructions are, fill the water pots with water. Jesus could have miraculously filled the empty pots with water himself. I mean, he changed water into wine. How much would it have taken for him to just say, those, those empty water pots, they're not empty. He could have done that. He didn't. Why did he ask others to do it? I think there's maybe a hundred reasons, including the fact that Jesus wanted there to be eyewitnesses to his miracle. But I also think that Jesus invites us to be partakers in his work. Not our work, his work. The work of the gospel. Because then we can also be partakers of God's blessing in the work. The commands of Christ here are very simple. And I think they're worth thinking about, probably memorizing. His commands are very simple. Fill, draw, take. Fill, draw, take. The spiritual principles are equally as simple. Fill yourself with God's word, with which comes his Holy Spirit. Draw from this great provision of Christ's strength, and take it to others. Very simple principles. Fill, draw, take. If we get them in the wrong order, or we skip one, I think we'll find 
There's no wine. Verses 8 to 10, the waters turn to wine. Should you and I quibble about the percentage of alcohol content in this wine that Christ made? If we do, I think we would be making the same mistake made by the scribes and the Pharisees when Jesus healed a man's crippled hand on the Sabbath. They saw the miracle, the manifest power of God right before their eyes, but they could not see the truth of it because Jesus did this miracle on the wrong day for miracles in their mind. They quibbled over Sabbath law and therefore they were utterly blinded to the manifest power of God right in their midst. So let's not make that mistake this morning. What's important, I think, is that this is no longer water. It is wine. This is a powerful symbol. Wine is a powerful symbol throughout the Old and New Testaments, both of judgment and of blessing. Wine is sometimes referred to, and I love this Hebrew idiom, the blood of grapes. And I think that's an appropriate way to see this miracle. Jesus would later choose to use wine as a representation of the new covenant in his blood. And this brings a depth and a richness to this miracle that we might otherwise miss. Jesus wants this miracle put to the test. Jesus did not do this miracle, this sign, for the private benefit of himself. He would not have any doubting about what had just taken place. The master of the feast did not need the servants to tell him what they were giving him. Can you imagine, by the way, so you have this master of the feast. Jesus says, go fill the pots with water and then take a cup, dip it, and take it to the master of the feast. And he's expecting wine. Can you imagine them just going, huh, are you sure that's the best idea? This isn't going to go over well. But the master of the feast didn't need the servants to come to him and say, here you go, this is wine. This looks like water and it tastes like water, but it's wine. There's been a miracle done. Imagine a miracle in which the servants take the contents of the pots to the master and explain to him, yeah, it's not, you know, it looks like water, it's clear, tastes like water. But it is in essence wine because Jesus did a great miracle. Now, I don't want to be too hard on my Catholic friends and their doctrine of transubstantiation. But let's be honest with ourselves and let's be honest with the text. When Christ does a miracle, even in the private places, right in the hearts of empty stone pots, there is no doubting that what he has done is real and transformative. The text states explicitly that the servants who had drawn the water knew that Jesus had done a great miracle. But the master didn't know. He didn't know where the wine came from. Even though he drank the wine, he just knew it was wine. Where the source of it probably wasn't a big deal to him. The guests didn't know, but they were partaking of wine. But those closest to Jesus knew what he had done. Jesus didn't utter a word or do some kind of ceremony. It was through his sheer will 
that the water was transformed into wine. It was obviously wine, even if they hadn't seen the miracle. I think that's sometimes true in the lives of believers. People might look at the life of a newly converted Christian and say, well, there's something different about him, but whatever. There's something different, but we'll just keep going on with our lives. They don't know that a miracle has taken place in their hearts. They just know something's different. With God, the best is last. I didn't really like that wording very much, but I didn't really know what to say. Maybe a better way to say it might be, with God, the best is yet to come. But at the same time, sometimes even right now, we're experiencing the best. But we'll get into what I mean here. C.H. Spurgeon said it like this, flipping this saying on its head a little bit. I shall bid you look at how the devil works. And you will find that he is true to the opposite rule. He brings forth first the good wine. And when men have well drunk and their brains are muddled therewith, then he brings forth that which is worse. That is how sin deceives. It comes with promises of happiness and fulfillment and leaves you with emptiness and sorrow. Not so with Christ. With Christ, the best comes with the joy and sense of being clean when we have walked in obedience to the Savior. Submit your life and your will to him, trust in his shed blood, and he will surely transform you with the best yet to come, not behind us. Last couple verses. says that this is the beginning of signs which puts to rest all the speculation about Jesus' childhood that we find in some writings. This is the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. This beginning of signs in the Gospel of John is the first of seven. And it is a miracle of transformation from the old ways of law, ceremony, and ritual purification to the new life in Jesus defined by grace, truth, and holiness. It is the first of these seven signs presented in the gospel, and each one of them is intended to bring the reader to faith in Jesus Christ. And John says this explicitly at the end of the gospel in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Here's what he writes. And truly, Jesus did many other signs, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John wrote this sign so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Remember, it's a sign. It's pointing to a greater Reality And that greater reality is the transforming power and the transforming life of Jesus Christ. From this point until chapter 4, verse 46, when Jesus does the next miracle, miracle number two, which is healing the nobleman's son, every story that John tells is related to this turning of water into wine by Jesus. So watch in the next while The theme, watch for the theme of transformation 
in all those texts as we go through them. And then we will get to the nobleman's son. So keep your eyes open for that. This brings us to our three practical lessons for the coming days. Number one, there will be times in every person's life where the wine fails. Brace yourself. The wine will fail. But from God's perspective, when the wine fails is when he can step in and miraculously provide that which is best. We see it as a loss. God sees it as an opportunity. Number two, and this follows directly from number one, natural wine fails precisely so that supernatural wine may be enjoyed. Ultimately, that which satisfies is Jesus Christ. Finally, number three, the deepest joy in the wine Jesus serves is given to broken people who ask in humble need. And I think that ought to be all of us. Certainly know that we're all broken. Are we willing to humble ourselves and recognize our need? Are we willing to acknowledge when the natural wine has run out, we've come to the end of our strength, the end of our gifts, the end of everything else, and at some point the natural wine runs out and we need the supernatural wine of God, Christ's transforming power to move in as he sees opportunity to give us that which is best. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning and there's so many lessons we can glean from this, this simple act that you did so long ago and caused to be recorded in your word. We ask that we would not embrace error from this passage, that we would see clearly and accurately what you have for us. We pray that we would be willing to be obedient to Christ, to fill these stone pots to the brim so that there's no room for anything else but the transforming power of Jesus Christ that we can go forward with. So we ask for your blessing this morning. We ask, there are some people in this room, assuredly there are some people in this room that are experiencing right at this moment that the wine has run out. And so for these people in particular, I ask that you would move into their lives and provide that supernatural wine, the best wine, so that they can continue to celebrate in you, in your transforming power, and look forward to the best that you have for us yet to come. For the rest of us, Lord, that may be um, experiencing gentler times, we just thank you for your provision. We ask that you would give us the discipline to be in your word, to prepare for those times when the wine does run out, that we might remain faithful and filled with the joy of Christ even through those times. For all these things, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.